can go ahead and be seated. Well, we are in the middle of a series uh, looking at the attributes of God, basically so that we can make sure we actually are talking about God accurately. Let me turn that down real quick. Basically, so we can make sure we're talking about God accurately when we say the name or the word God, because everybody or an awful lot of people use that word, but uh, many times they mean very different things when they use the word or the title God. And so what we've tried to do over the last number of weeks is mine the scriptures, mine the, the riches of the Bible to try and accurately describe what we mean when we use that word. And so to do that today, we're going to be looking at God's attribute of omnipotence. That's not a word we use too often in our vernacular, but it is otherwise known as his power. God is all powerful. And we're going to do that looking at Psalm 19. Now, we're going to do something a little different tonight. I'm not going to actually read the whole passage beforehand, but rather I'm going to sort of walk us through it as I preach tonight, because we are going to cover every one of these verses in the sermon. And so I'm not going to read it, but I do want to pause for a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into tonight's message. So uh, bow with me, please. Father, thank you that it is by grace that we are redeemed by grace that we are restored, and by grace that we will ultimately end up home in the heavenlies. End up home with you, because that is home, where we're really meant to be, what we were really made for. <coughs> Lord God, I pray that that grace that we just sung about would be seen even more clearly tonight as we dig into your attribute of omnipotence. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, most of you know I'm the father of three boys. And uh, for whatever reason, boys really want to prove early on in their life that they're strong, that they're powerful. I see it right now with my littlest one. He's six. His name is Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln. Uh, always tries to carry things in, maybe help his mom with groceries, you know, from the car into the apartment or the house, um, and or try and carry something. And then he'll ask me, he's like, Daddy, do I look strong? You know, and he'll show me his muscles. And of course, I tell him he does look strong. And all my boys did this. All three of my boys definitely wanted me to acknowledge their strength and their power. But there's always been one thing right around this, my son's age, that they were not powerful enough to handle and it was this, it was pouring milk into cereal on their own. Every single one of them has had an accident in which they thought they just might be powerful enough to take the gallon jug from the refrigerator, twist off the top, and pour just the right amount into the cereal. And you know that that has not happened. In fact, it ends up with frustration and literally tears crying over spilled milk. I mean, that is a thing, and it happens. I've seen it happen multiple times with my boys, crying over spilled milk. Uh, and, and so this lack of power all of a sudden is dawning on them, like they didn't have the strength that they thought they did. And to some extent, uh, I think all of us can acknowledge that human life in one sense, if you wanted to define it one way, could be an acknowledgement of our lack of power on any given base, on any given day. Not in the same way, maybe not physical strength, but there's many times in our life where we feel pretty powerless to change anything. 
If you're having a hard time with thinking of an example, just imagine trying to get the L train to arrive on time on any given day and you'll get the picture. This is something out of your control, something you do not have power over. Well, uh, God defines himself in the opposite way. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. The book of Revelation has a great passage where the Apostle John sees uh, sort of a future picture of heaven and what it's going to look like in there, of course, worshiping God. And one of the things they say is they say, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful reigns. Actually, in the Hallelujah Chorus, the famous Hallelujah Chorus that I'm sure you've heard before, Handel's, it's in Handel's Messiah, it says it like this. I love the way it sounds. Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. It's got the ith at the end because it sounds cool. Uh, so that word omnipotent, we translate, of course, almighty or all powerful. And one commentator says we could define it this way. It is he who holds sway over all things. God holds sway over all things. So how do we see that? Well, I think our psalm tonight is going to show us where it is we can look, what it is we can hear, what it is that we can experience, where we're reminded, where we're shown again the power of God. First of all, the psalmist points out that it's in creation. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says this, you want to follow along in your bulletin. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, the psalmist, most likely David, King David, says, looking at creation, looking at the universe around you, whether up in the sky, seeing all the stars and all the constellations and all the galaxies, or just looking at what's around you on any given day, leads one to believe that there is indeed a creator. I would argue that maybe even the most persuasive evidence from nature that there's a creator that we see as powerful might be actually not up there in the big, but actually in the small. I mean, with microscopes now, we can see inside the human body and we can analyze things like DNA, something that David would have had no idea existed back then. But what we now know and we take for granted is that each one of us has millions of DNA cells, and each one, each one, this is true, each one of those DNA cells has enough information on it to fill an encyclopedia. I mean, it, it massive amounts of information carrying around all these millions of DNA cells in our bodies. And we see that and we say, whoever made this thing must be pretty powerful, must be pretty brilliant. It leads us to believe that, that indeed, as Paul said in the passage that Kat read earlier, that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been 
clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Interestingly, just as a side note, the Apostle Paul in chapter 1, one of the implications he says, one of the implications of what he writes in Romans 1 there, is that in fact there may be people that claim to be atheists, and indeed they may think of themselves that way. But in fact, Paul says, by nature, no one is. By nature, everyone looking around at creation knows deep down that there is something or someone powerful out there. Might not know how to define it, might not know the name, but, but that's the argument that David is making. He goes on in verse 4. Their voice, speaking of the heavens again, speaking of nature, goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, notice where David goes as he looks up at the sky he can't help, he's so overwhelmed by, by just thinking of all that goes on in nature that he starts using poetic language. I mean, he doesn't really believe that the sun is housed in a tent. But he's trying to come up with language to describe the beauty of what he sees in creation, overwhelmed by the power of God. David sees the glory and power of God just in the rising and the setting of the sun. I wonder if you ever have, or if you ever do. I was in California for the last couple weeks, and, um, you know, I, I, I remembered to actually look at the sun. Don't look directly at it, it's not good. But to actually look and acknowledge and pause and appreciate the sun going down in California. There's very few, very few things like it, actually. I remember to stop and acknowledge what it looks like to see the sun coming up. There's something about it that can be quite magnificent if you just stop for a moment. G.K. Chesterton, writer and apologist, talked about this very thing. He said, the sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning. But the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. Now, to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a life lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children, Chesterton says, when they find some game or joke that they specially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, Chesterton says. But, perhaps, God is. It is possible... That God says every morning to the sun, do it again. And to the moon, do it again. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but is just never tired of making them. 
It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. And I love this line. He says, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Heavenly Father is younger than we. You get the picture. It's all about perspective. It's all about taking just a moment, and all of a sudden you recognize, oh my goodness, I'm surrounded by billions of stars. And I mean, depending on the scientists you hear from, I mean, but most say there's, I mean, there's millions of galaxies all around us. And if you just take a moment to stop and realize that, it's like David goes, yeah, you're going to be overwhelmed by the power of God. That he could build such a thing. So that's the first thing. David says, yeah, we look to creation. And if we, if we look at it for just a little bit, we're going to see his power. But then secondly, secondly, David moves on. It's like he changes all of a sudden to moving from sort of nature to God's words. And specifically, God's words of instruction for how the world is supposed to to operate. Look at what he says in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now when one hears the pronouncement of the law, God's design, um, for example, Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. I could go on, but you get the picture. What one sees, what one is hearing, is a picture of God's character. It's God's perfection. That's part of what David is seeing here. It's like when you hear these things proclaimed, that this is what it means to be perfect, you are hearing about who God is. And as a result of hearing it, David says, this revives the soul. Now that might sound a little off at first. And here's why. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, something we're big on here, says in Romans 7 that, that in fact, when the law comes, sin comes alive and he dies. So how do we reconcile? David says the law came and revives the soul. Paul says the law comes, kills me. Well, stick with me here for a bit. The word for revive here in the psalm actually carries with it the connotation of being woken up from a deep sleep, jarred awake. And there is a sense in which when Paul talks about the law coming and it beating him down or killing him, it jars him awake to recognize his condition. And I think what David is saying here is that the law comes and I recognize who I really am. I recognize that he is powerful and I am powerless. So I think when he's talking about reviving the soul, I think what he means is something akin to this. Imagine, think about what happens if you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you a diagnosis that you have cancer. It jars you, it wakes you up, but it also is telling you, reminding you of impending doom. It does both those things at the same time. So David goes on after describing this powerful word of law and what it does, how it wakes you up, it jars you. He says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So if on the one hand the commandment is a way of seeing God's perfect character, it's also a way of showing a mirror to us to recognize that we aren't perfect characters. The law uncovers us and lays us bare. It forces us to look at that which we'd rather pretend isn't there. I, <clears throat> the other day was, I caught my kids in something that they shouldn't be doing. And when I confronted them, they had no words. They had nothing to say. They were fighting, you know. And, uh, but then one of them, one of them said, you know, because they were fighting, one of them actually tried to quote scripture. He said, hey, hey, the Bible says eye for an eye. And I said, uh, yeah, it does. It does say eye for an eye. But I think you, and you know this, weren't just going after the eye. You were going after the eye, the nose, the forehead, and the teeth. Like, it wasn't eye for an eye there. And he knew it. He knew exactly what I was saying. That's it. The law does that. The law sort of exposes you to the reality. It's, a, it's not what you try and make your excuses say. But it forces you to acknowledge truth. What's really going on. And so once we see that in light of God's perfection, that we are very not perfect, perfect at all... Uh, once we see our sin and our failure, then we recognize, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Notice he's not denying, even as he's acknowledging that he doesn't uh, have everything all together, he's acknowledging that God's rules are good, they're perfect. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. True. True. In keeping God's law, if we did it for, if we did it, oh, there is such great reward. The Bible is filled with conditional promises, especially in the Old Testament, to the nation of Israel. Listen, you obey me, you do everything I say, you're entering a land flowing with milk and honey and good stuff. Blessing, 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 blessing. But on the other hand, if you disobey me, there will be nothing but curses and pain, and death. And indeed, that is what has come. And so I think that's why we get finally to verse 12. So David is sort of describing all the beauty of the law, the, the power that comes from God's law being proclaimed, and what is this very next word after he says how great the reward is, his very next words are, who can discern his heirs? If I can just read behind the lines there a little bit. David says, I acknowledge the law is good. I hear it saying this, but as much as I may think or have tried to live it out, I know that I have heirs that I can't even name. I have problems that I'm not even aware of, that I'm blind to. Who can possibly know even where to start to fix themselves? And so here's where David goes. He cries out for an act of mercy. To this God of power, he cries out 
declare me innocent from hidden faults. The stuff that I don't even know to confess to you, God? Can you declare me innocent of that? Can you declare me innocent of even the stuff that I do know I've done wrong, God? There's a song that we sing here pretty regularly. It's um, very simple. Uh, it's fairly modern. It's called Who You Say I Am. I love the song because I, the, the theology of it is the theology of that statement. I am who you say I am is so right in line with what Scripture says. Now, what we are trained to believe is that we are who we say we are. We are who our sins say we are. We are who our faults say we are. We are who the world judges us to be. But that song reminds us, no, no, no. The truth about me is what God declares about me. And through Jesus Christ, his ultimate act of power, he in fact does declare us, this is the good news, innocent from hidden faults. That's why David says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. If you make that declaration of me, no matter what I've done, no matter what I've done in the past, it's true. I am who you say I am, God. This is the same cry as the tax collector. God be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, where God's power is ultimately found isn't in nature, although it's there. We want to think of it as being in the thunder and the lightning and on the mountaintops and in the the things, that, the earthquakes. And yes, it's there. It is. But it's not ultimately just that. And it's not ultimately his law where his power is found. It is there. I mean, think about Sinai when God delivers the law. It's smoking. It's everything that you associate with power. But ultimately, what God says, where he says his power is most to be found, is where his forgiveness is found. And that forgiveness is found on the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. At the very moment that God looks the weakest, God says, no, in fact, that's my revelation of power. So, you want to know, if you ever think about where to find the example of God's power, you need to think about Jesus hanging on the cross, bloodied, crucified, with nails in his hands, nails in his feet, crying out with crown of thorns in his head, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and you will get the ultimate picture of power. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 22, same chapter, 1 Corinthians 1. For Jews demand signs or power, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Now, I will grant, uh, at first glance, seeing, thinking of God ultimately in his most powerful when he's hanging on a cross doesn't seem to jive with our picture of power. But to make the point, I want to, I want to share just a thought with you from one of my mentors, Tim Keller. He points out that actually to forgive is more powerful than to lash out. He says, quote, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like kind of a death. In other words, it's, it's easier to give in. It's easier to fight back. It's easier to push back. But what takes real power is absorbing wrong done to you and extending grace and mercy. And that's what Jesus does on the cross for the whole world of sinners. And indeed answers that prayer of David and declares sinners innocent from hidden faults. That's why G.K. Chesterton again could say the cross cannot be defeated, for it is defeat. Martin Luther, it is not sufficient for anyone and it does him no good to recognize God in his glory and majesty and power unless he recognizes him in the humility and shame of the cross. So let me close We've gone through 13 verses of this psalm. There's one more verse left. And this is David's prayer at the end. As he, as he trusts that God is going to declare him innocent from hidden faults, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Notice, notice what happens. David asks for forgiveness to be declared innocent even though he's got his faults and he knows he does, he doesn't deny him. And now, he can confidently say, yeah, let the words of my mouth now and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And the fact is, it does become acceptable in his sight because the very last words of this song, because of his rock and his redeemer, what does Jesus call himself in the New Testament? Those very things, the rock and redeemer of God's people. So God's power is most shown in being able, this is power, being able to take the worst of people and transform them into worshipers and people that can extend grace and mercy to others. He's able to take even the worst of us and declare us hidden, innocent in all our faults hidden in his sight. That is power. Let's pause for a word of prayer, and then we'll go to the table together. Father, thank you for this power that forgives sins. It's very easy for us when we think of your power to want to shrink away, because indeed you're powerful enough that you can crush this world at any moment. But instead, you use the world not to crush, but to condescend. 
you condescend to us where we're at in our neediness. And by your grace, you hide our faults. And so, Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving. We pray now as we prepare to go to the table, Lord, that you, that you would be glorified and that you would give us all we need to continue to believe in all that we need from you, our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we're going to go ahead and take a, an offering. And uh, there's a couple ways you can give. If you'd like to give to Epiphany, you can give, of course, in the plate. But there's also a square reader in the back. If you're comfortable using a card, and you can give to Epiphany Church NYC. Is that right? On Venmo, if that's easier for you. And, of course, uh, there is no pressure to give ever here at Epiphany. We don't want anybody ever feeling like it's a have to. But we do want you to give if you feel like it's a get to, and we hope that is the case. So we'll take an offering. The worship team will play, and then we'll go to the table together.